This is a special Southpaw presentation of Tribunus Plebis, a podcast focused on working class politics and history. The topic for this special presentation is the anti-labor practices of the UFC. Whether you're a fan of MMA or not, if you care about worker rights and class solidarity, you'll want to listen to this episode. Welcome, Southpaw listeners. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special episode of the Tribunus Plebis podcast. Today, we will be talking about the possibility of unionizing MMA fighters. But first, this. In an interesting coincidence, a news story broke on December 10th, just as I was finishing up outlining this very episode, that a federal judge would be ruling in favor of a group of MMA fighters concerning a procedural issue and ultimately would grant class action status to a lawsuit filed by those fighters against the UFC. The lawsuit accuses the UFC of using its monopoly and, more importantly, its monopsony power to depress the wages of fighters it employs. And statements like the following, which was in a document related to Endeavor's purchase of UFC's parent company, probably won't help their case. Quote, fighter comp, meaning compensation, was the most asked question by financing sources, and it is a critical cost that we must actively manage, end quote. Now, I had been aware of this lawsuit. It was started about six years ago, after all, but I never expected a ruling anytime soon. Class action suits concerning antitrust issues tend to take a long time to worm their way through courts, and class action suits take even longer. The monopsony issue is doubly exciting for me because I honestly kind of nerd out about it and just antitrust in general. In fact, it was the first major writing I did for my blog when it started. All in all, this case is far from over. In fact, in many ways, it has just begun. But I bet that the UFC and Endeavor, the company which owns them, are feeling the screws begin to tighten. That alone should be enough to convince fighters to consider collective bargaining. But listen to this. These are the percentages of overall league revenue, which goes to player compensation in the major U.S. sports. In Major League Baseball, it's 47%. The National Football League, 48%. In the National Basketball Association, it's 50%. And in the National Hockey League, 50%. Major League Soccer, perhaps the smallest of what we could still call the quote-unquote major sports, its players get paid roughly 30% of league revenue. The percentage of revenue going to UFC fighters? Just 16%. Now, one of the things you will hear UFC stands in Dana White, the UFC honcho, say is that the UFC, well, really Dana White, if we are being honest here, hands out bonuses that aren't always divulged as fight pay and therefore will not show up in that percentage. And this is true in some degree or another, 
There are, after all, stories about this happening all the time, even if they are often relatively vague things like, Dana took care of me, or I got a little backstage bonus after my last fight. But there are some serious problems with this situation, and all of them are problems faced by the fighters themselves. One problem is financial and even health insecurity. Earlier this year, UFC fighter Jessica Rose Clark tweeted a screenshot from her phone showing that she had just $17.70 in her bank account right before a fight. The text of the tweet said this, quote, A bonus would have been nice, Uncle Dana. I'll do better next time. End quote. And that tweet basically lays it all out right there. Winning isn't enough. A long career with five fights in the UFC is not enough. Dominating fights is not enough. Making fans happy isn't even enough. It all comes down to pleasing Dana White. It all comes down to pleasing a power-mad egomaniac who doesn't pay people who win. He only pays people who win how he wants them to win. And right now, I'm ignoring the grossness of the phrasing of Uncle Dana here. Even right now, the UFC is trying to transition to a system where they get as many new fighters as possible coming up through the UFC's Dana White's Contender Series, where prospects fight for a spot on the UFC roster. The dark side of this concept is that these fighters aren't getting paid jack, and they are explicitly told and shown through Dana White's actions that simply winning your fights is not enough. No, you have to be quote-unquote exciting and taking ridiculous risks. This is a system which, once indoctrinated, will just continue to push into the main card fighters of the UFC. But as Southpaw listeners, you folks should all be aware of all of that. Episode 56, The Invisible Hand of MMA Face Punching, covered a lot of that quite brilliantly. But this issue speaks to a broader problem of financial instability for MMA athletes. UFC fighters, and I am focusing on the UFC here, although this could absolutely be spread across all MMA promotions, do not have salaries, they do not have constant health insurance, they do not have guaranteed contracts, and they have no pension fund. Oh, and speaking of these contracts, UFC fighters aren't even considered employees. They are considered independent contractors, which is little more than a joke at this point. And just as a little bit of an aside here, we can look at the passing of Proposition 22 in California, which effectively strips contract workers of the benefits legally guaranteed them if they were classified as employees. Of course, they should be classified as employees, but tens of millions of dollars from companies like Instacart, Lyft, and Uber made sure that they could not be protected in that way. And they did that to protect their deeply predatory business practices. And you better believe that the UFC, their ownership group, and Dana White, along with other MMA organizations, will dump millions into more campaigns to copy Proposition 22 in states like Nevada, where the UFC is based. And this will further harm fighters and any other contract workers in the process. And moving back to the main point here, the contracts the UFC uses are exclusive to the UFC. The fighter has no real ability to exit the contract while the UFC can cut ties at any time, even while also preventing the cut fighter from utilizing the market to find another employer. 
And much of these fighters' potential pay is tied up and distributed by, guess who? Yep, the aforementioned Dana White. As a result, fighters are not allowed to tout their own sponsors when they are on site for the week before the fight or during the fight, which is when they are at their most visible and most valuable to those potential sponsors. Instead, they are forced to wear the products of sponsors which pay the UFC directly, not the fighters. Each fighter is also forced to sign away their own likenesses to the UFC without compensation for its use. This by itself is preposterous on its face, if you'll pardon the pun. Think about the revenue generated by the UFC video games, fighter likenesses being used to promote old fights on Fight Pass, the revenue generated by using a fighter's likeness to promote sponsors who pay the UFC, and so on. Hell, the UFC even sells official fight kit, shirts, shorts, and other items with fighter names plastered on them, and the fighters get virtually nothing for it. Fighters should be getting a piece of this lucrative revenue stream just like they do in other pro sports. Do any of you think that the NHL players and their players association would accept not being paid for their likenesses, stats, and names as they are being used in the ultra-popular EA Sports NHL video game series? Of course they wouldn't. And do you think that they'd all be able to effectively fight for that money without a union? And this isn't lost on all fighters either. Leslie Smith famously agitated for a fighters union, citing the same basic issues I've laid out so far. For her nascent organizing, she was fired. Uh, I'm sorry. She was not an employee. She was an independent contractor, they say. So she was released from her contract. And the reason she was released was because of her unionizing efforts. Um, I mean, she was released because she had, hang on, let me check the record here. Oh, she had won her last two fights. Right. The most recent info I can find that seems reliable, and please forgive me if this is proven incorrect, shows the following. A first-time UFC contract starts off with $3,500 to show and make weight and a $3,500 win bonus. So that's $3,500 guaranteed if you make weight. The other $3,500 only comes if you actually win. Now consider that the UFC doesn't pay for your team to travel and that they will rent one hotel room for the fighter. So that's three or four airline tickets or other travel out of pocket for the fighter. Plus, all of those people are crammed into one room or the fighter has to pay for any extra rooms. And this on top of, you know, actually paying for your training. Yeah, that training and the fight camp and the coaches, they aren't free. According to that same article, the average pay for a UFC fighter is around $140,000, which doesn't sound so bad, maybe. Until you consider just how poorly the bottom 90 plus percent of fighters are paid and how well the very top is paid. And that extreme gap in income is why the average looks as good as it does. A few people like John Jones, Conor McGregor, Alistair Overeem, Anderson Silva, or even people like Brock Lesnar can skew those numbers pretty severely. So much so that the average number doesn't even really tell us much. I tried to find the median salary, but I couldn't find anything on that. Also, we need to figure out just how little these people are being paid when we consider exactly what they do for a living and the sorts of permanent damage that they are doing to themselves for our entertainment and a pittance of a paycheck. 
and we need to ask just exactly what fair pay means in this context. The one thing I'm sure of is that 90 plus percent of fighters are not getting fair pay, not by a long shot. And really, when you think about it, it's probably 100% of fighters are not getting paid what they are worth. Now, to touch back on the antitrust lawsuit claiming abuse of monopsony powers, and let me just take a second here for anyone who doesn't know what that means. Monopsony is Monopoly's evil cousin. Basically, it just means that one firm, in this case the UFC, is the only or the most powerful purchaser of a good. In this case, they are the biggest buyer of MMA fighters' labor. I'll bet that somewhere down the line, Dana White will be asked about this lawsuit, and he will claim that the UFC does not have monopsony power. And then a few days later, he will tell a fighter to take it or leave it because who else is going to pay them? The UFC wants to convince fighters that without the UFC, they wouldn't be able to get paid for fighting. But the reality is that the UFC itself cannot exist without these fighters. So to summarize all of that, the UFC is uber profitable. It underpays its fighters. It misclassifies those fighters as independent contractors. The UFC, through Dana White, who effectively acts as the muscle and thug of the organization, wields tremendous power over the pay and the very ability of its fighters to even fight and fulfill their contracts. And it controls the actual likenesses of the fighters, even after they've left the company. And just to put a fine point on how insane the system of fight in UFC promotion is, we can look at what happened to Liz Carmouche, the longtime UFC title contender and two-time title challenger. She was asked to go to a UFC fight week in Washington, D.C., and she did so on her own dime, according to her story, and having to take a week off from her regular job. And the whole time she was there, she had left behind her wife and child. The UFC brought her out to D.C. as a former Marine and Iraq war veteran to lay a wreath in Arlington and to talk to injured soldiers at Walter Reed Hospital. And she got word that she had been cut partway through the events. Like she was there on her own dime being used for PR due to her military service. She was actually with the UFC and they didn't even have the decency to contact her. They cut her as she was performing public relations for them. It's absurd that something like this would happen. The UFC even goes so far as to make fighters promote both themselves, their competitors, and their upcoming fights through their own social media as a means to further push costs and risk onto the fighters themselves. Can you imagine NFL players talking mad junk on their Instagram story to hype the upcoming game? No, of course not. The NFL runs ads because it's their league. The players just get paid to play. And there is a whole side piece here about a few female MMA fighters that I have read comments from who lament the fact that they feel like they are being pushed to sexualize themselves to gain followers on social media and to make the UFC and Dana happier. But honestly, somebody else would probably be more qualified to slog into that particular quagmire. Still, I think it's worth noting. Even the UFC's so-called PED and drug policy was handed down as an edict enforced upon the fighters. For every other sport, things like drug testing regimes are bargained over. 
Everything from exactly what they can test for, the numbers that trigger positives, and even how many times, when, and where they can be tested. UFC fighters had no say in this. They were just told from on high, like employees would be, except they aren't employees, according to the UFC. You see all these contradictions, right? Another thing which the fighters had no say in, nor a true cut of the proceeds from, was the current ESPN deal worth $750 million. Hell, during the global COVID pandemic, the UFC was the first sport to hold events, and with no real say from those who were set to compete in them. Sure, they could opt out and not fight, but aside from a few very prominent and very popular fighters, this choice can very easily kill your career, mostly because Dana White is as vindictive as he is arrogant. And let's not toss aside the fact that so many of these fighters are living paycheck to paycheck. They have to fight. That's the hook that the UFC has in them. They don't pay them enough to live. Now, an apologist for big business might be able to somehow explain away one or any of those individual issues. But when you combine all of them, or even just a few of them, the picture really starts to fill in and become clear. And that picture, as it comes into focus, is a picture showing the exploitation of labor. So what can be done with the formation of a union and collective bargaining? Quite a lot, actually. A union could standardize contract length and payouts. They could also either limit the ability of the UFC to unilaterally cut fighters by making them four-cause contracts. They could even limit the actual length of the contract, whether in years or number of fights, to get fighters into a free agency period more often. Currently, MMA contracts have something that is almost akin to baseball's old reserve clause, which allowed the team that drafted a player to re-sign them for perpetuity if they so chose. These MMA contracts have various ways that the organization can extend the contracts or simply just freeze them, and they even reserve matching rights. And those last few items really put the joke into the idea that these fighters are individual contractors and not, as they certainly are, employees in the classic sense of the word. Fighters should be just as capable of canceling a contract due to inactivity as the organization is. An important aspect to consider here is the power that the UFC holds over the entire sport. That's the monopsony. That's the monopoly. It is easily the biggest and most important organization in MMA, whether we like it or not. And that's not to dump on the other organizations out there either. It's just the reality of the situation. Like most large employers, the UFC holds immense power, which can be met by individual power only very rarely. So if all that's more or less true, why haven't these fighters organized? Well, fear is a big part of it, I think, especially for the newer and less well-known fighters who are toiling on the fight night undercards. And there is also a game theory aspect to it all. You combine all of this with the sort of individualistic attitude and self-belief that's so prevalent in MMA fighters, and you get a group of people who are willing to eschew the protections and guarantees that a union could provide and opt to shoot for a belt in the lucrative contracts that can come with it. Personally, for MMA fighters to unionize, I am convinced that it has to be led and led strongly from the very tops of the sport. 
people like John Jones, McGregor, Diaz, Nunes, Usman, and the other top fighters from other organizations like PFL, Bellator, or One. Dana White in the UFC won't care if the entire undercard list unionized. He'd probably just cut them all or maneuver fights in a way to punish them and try to move on. But if McGregor, Jones, Masvidal, Usman, Nunes, and so on, the most popular fighters and those with belts, were to organize along with the lower-tier fighters, now that would be a force to reckon with. Unfortunately, a lot of the top fighters are unlikely to do this. I'm pretty sure that these top-tier fighters would think, and they would definitely be told this by the UFC, that they would somehow make less money themselves. They would be told some lie about this being a zero-sum game, the message likely being some sort of ham-fisted scare talk about they want to take your money and give it to bad fighters with no personality who don't deserve it. But the reality is that this was the exact same argument made by every sports league of all time, that the stars would make less money so that the scrubs could have it all given to them. Fortunately, there is a long record of this being completely and utterly untrue. The stars in every organized league make massive amounts of money, and they get pensions, year-round health care, per diems, yeah, even Major League Baseball players making $20 million a year get per diems when they travel, and the security of plainly laid out contracts, free agency, and negotiated union contracts. Now, how could this work? After all, the UFC isn't really a league like these other sports are. And this is true, of course. But it also shouldn't matter. As far as I can suss out, the best avenue seems to be a general MMA fighters union, of which at least one has been established, the Professional Fighters Association. This union could then negotiate with each organization, including the UFC, for collective bargaining agreements. This strikes me as a more solid method than forming a UFC-only union. After all, one of the goals of fighters should be free agency and a chance to negotiate their worth. Having a good contract with the UFC, only to be faced with the same terrible contracts as before with other organizations, isn't exactly appealing. After all, a primary motive here should be for free agency, and multiple free agencies throughout your career. The ability for fighters to more or less freely move from one organization to the next, and the ability for them to negotiate their individual contract free from coercion should be top of the list. So tell me how these things sound. Shorter, more well-defined contracts. Contracts which favor the fighters just as much as they favor the organization. Year-round health care, not just for when fighters are in camps or fights some form of pension funding, revenue sharing from the use of their likenesses, the ability to get sponsors and to promote those sponsors during fight week and in the octagon when fighters are most visible and most valuable, true free agency, true revenue sharing. Fighters say on everything from octagon size to referees to cutmen and even the doctors who oversee the fights. Freedom to say no with no punishment. Negotiating drug testing regimes. The freedom to not beg Dana White for bonuses or ever write Uncle Dana 
ever again. A union could help certify agents and set contractual standards for them to help alleviate the rampant stories of agents screwing over fighters. These are all things worth fighting for from a labor perspective, and they are just the most obvious things, the ice we see above the water. But all of this stuff, the most obvious things, they impact all of those hidden aspects of labor oppression that lie below the water, the hidden costs of exploitation, the insecurity, the fear, the hopelessness, the debilitating health and injury issues, and so on. I never want to see another UFC fighter, or any professional MMA fighter for that matter, but especially a tenured fighter, stand in the ring after a fight and beg Uncle Dana for money before the winner is even announced, rather than just basking in their triumph. The winner's post-fight interview shouldn't be tainted with plaintive cries for bonus cash either. They should be reliving a highlight of their life, not worrying about bills. And fighters like Davis and Figueredo should not have to resort to social media to shame Uncle Dana into delivering him a bonus in a paper bag, which just recently happened. And again, as Southpaw listeners, we know why Dana White holds these bonuses over his fighters' heads. He wants them to be excited and to bite down on their mouthpieces. And he wants them to give the crowd a show. The UFC has gamified combat sports. They want spectacle over substance. It's time for MMA fighters to bite down on those proverbial mouthpieces, but this time as a unified group and make a spectacle of their labor fight. A fight for true substance over false spectacle. And that's it for this episode, folks. And I just want to take a second here to thank Sam and Paul of Southpaw for hosting this episode of the Tribunus Plebis podcast on their platform. A true act of solidarity and a kindness I'd like to pay forward in the future. If you folks like what you heard, please consider following Tribunus Plebis on whatever podcast app you use, and maybe even rating and reviewing on Apple if you feel so moved. And don't be afraid to share via word of mouth or social media either. This is how you can help us grow. Thank you, everybody, for listening. My name is Sean, and this has been Tribunus Plebis. <laughs>